Wow, was that great or what? Man, oh, such a spontaneous outpouring. That was great. Hey, join me, if you will, in welcoming into our service Lake Hills Church downtown at Brazos Hall. Yeah. Now, now, some of you might be a little curious about walking into a church service and seeing that we're talking about love, and then the song right before the message is Love is Hard. Well, guess what? That's truth. Matter of fact, tell your neighbor right now, that's truth. I mean, it just, that, that's why we're doing this series, because love, real love, is tough. Now, today, we're going to have some fun. But before I get into today's message, I, I need to tell you just a little story. My wife, Julie, before we were married, was home for Christmas, I believe, in Mississippi. And way back when, we used to go to these things called the video store. And we would rent huge cassette tapes in order to watch a movie. And Julie had heard about this movie and went and rented it and brought it home. And she and her dad, my father-in-law, Joe, were going to watch this movie together. The name of the movie was No Way Out, starring Kevin Costner. It was kind of a, a political thriller, kind of a movie, Who done it? what's going to happen, we don't know. But about a fourth of the way into the movie, Costner and the, his love interest in this movie are coming home from a state dinner in Washington, D.C., and they're in a limousine, and all of a sudden, the limousine turns into a rolling hotel, at which point my father-in-law very wisely took the remote control and he paused it. And he looked at Julie, his daughter, and he said this, I can watch this. You can watch this. We cannot watch this together. <laughs> Today's message is like that moment in my wife's life. If you're here today and you have your child with you who's maybe in the fifth grade or younger, this is the great opportunity of your lifetime to introduce them to the blessing of LHC Kids Children's Ministry. <laughs> this message today, as we talk about love, we're turning to the romantic part. And so I'm telling you, right now is a great time to, I'm not kidding, I'm not being funny, take your child to the children's ministry right now. This is the time to do that. We'll take a few minutes. I'm not going to say anything important for about another 15 minutes. So if you have a child with you, go ahead and take them to the children's ministry unless you want to have a very awkward conversation at lunch. I'm just telling you because I love you. Downtown, y'all as well. But today, we turn our attention to the romantic side of love, specifically the sexual side of love and what God intends. See, there's already revolt in the seats <laughs> out of the mouths of babes. She knew, I don't, Dad, I don't want to be here for this. <laughs> Is that a great story, though? I can watch this. You can watch this. We cannot watch this together. But the fact of the matter is, God speaks openly and directly about the subject of sex throughout the Bible. If you're somebody who thinks the Bible is just kind of a nice little catalog of proverbs and cute sayings, you haven't read the book. I'm telling you, before you even get out of Genesis, it's rated R. Now, it's not always an endorsement 
of a rated R lifestyle or a rated R or NC-17 choices, but it is there because, check this out, it's almost as if God knows that we're interested in sex. I want you to let that sink in for just a second. If you think that it's a surprise to God or that God just gave us sex in order to procreate and to populate the earth, you have grossly misunderstood what God says about the gift of sex. Real quickly, look at your neighbor. Hopefully, if you you don't know him, this is a great opportunity. (laughs) But just tell your neighbor, it's a gift. Some of you wives are going, it's a gift. (laughs) Some of you husbands are going, oh, it's a gift. (laughs) This is going to be fun today. Let me tell you what I want to do. We're going to talk about sex, biblical sex. And the, the picture that God paints biblically throughout the Bible is is really very clear. I, I don't think anybody could intelligently argue that that God is in favor of multiple sexual partners whenever, wherever, and however you feel like it. As a matter of fact, God says that sex is to be preserved for marriage. One man, one woman, one life. Now, the challenge that you and I face is this. We live in a world that sends multiple myriad conflicting messages about sex and specifically about our sexuality. And so my message this morning is really very simple. I'm going to tell you two lies and one truth. Two lies that the world feeds us that if we're not really careful we buy into, but one corresponding truth that defeats every deceit, every dishonesty, specifically about sex. The first, lie, the first lie that the world tells us about sex is this. It's just sex. It's just sex. It's, it's no big deal. So you just kind of stand over here. It's like, you know, hey, look, man, it's, it's like this is just kind of part of who I am. I'm born with this drive. I'm born with this need. And, man, he's really good looking or she's hot. And it's just sex. That's lie number one. Lie number two is on the far far other end of the spectrum and line number two says my sexuality defines me that I am my sexuality my ability to conquer my ability to score my ability whatever the case might be that this is who I am in total and the reality is that God has placed truth somewhere between these two extremes it is not the be-all and end-all But neither does it completely define you. There is more to who you are, more to who I am as creatures created in the image of a creator God. There's more to us. Our sexuality is a part of that, but it is not the sum total. It does not by itself define who we are. And so what I want to do is kind of move into more of a discussion about why God says what he says. We'll talk about what he says, but I want to establish a baseline and a foundation that works for everybody. There's not one person in this room or downtown at Brazos Hall or watching online or who will watch it later in a podcast. Not one person 
for whom what God says biblically about the gift of sex doesn't work. This is how he's created us. Now, <clears throat> to get at this, I want you to take out your programs that you got when you came in today because I want to challenge you. I want to invite you, really, to take notes because this is stuff you're going to need. Now, if you are a parent of a child and you haven't yet had the talk with your kids, I hope and I pray that through this message, God gives you something that you can kind of digest and then recycle in an age-appropriate way because guess who the first line of sexual defense is supposed to be in your child's life you 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 dad it's your responsibility to talk to your son about sex to set him up for a win in this arena moms it is your job to talk to your daughters now sometimes it happens in different ways in different families but bottom line the church and heaven knows not the school is supposed to be the place where our kids learn about and discover this at an age-appropriate level. What is age-appropriate? It varies from child to child. I have a very close friend who's a pastor, and his mom got into this conversation with him at a very young age because it just kind of came up and it was there, and she began to explain to him, you know, when a mother and a father love one another and a baby is born, and she got into the whole shooting match and explained the birds and the bees. And my close friend looked in, his eyes, in the eyes of his mother and said, that's not true, and walked off. He was not ready to receive that reality. But, but here's the thing that, that we need to understand, and this is what I want to challenge you to write down and to remember this as we begin the conversation, or really any conversation. Theology drives understanding, and understanding drives behavior, and behavior drives results. I'm going to say that again. Theology drives understanding. And understanding drives behavior. And our behavior drives our results. Now, when I say theology, the, the word theology, yes, it is an academic study of God. But the fact of the matter is, all of us have a theology. Theology is just our ideas about God. That's what a theology is. The atheist has a theology. She thinks there is no God. That's a theology. The agnostic says, well, there may be a God. I don't know, but I'm going to try to figure it out on my own. And the Christian theology of God is that there is a God, and he is intimately connected to and concerned with and Lord over every part of my life because he loves me because I was created in his image. That's a theology, is an idea about God. Our understanding is informed by our theology. What we think about God provides the basis for every understanding that we have. Our understanding is just our, our precepts or our perception. You've heard the saying before that perception is reality. It, that's true in a sense. But I could perceive that I'm really and truly in the exact same physical shape that I was when I was 19. And I could try to act like that and, and say, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm jacked, I, I'm an athlete, I, I can do this. And you're going to look back at me and go, poor, poor Mac. That's his perception. That's, that's how he's acting, but whew, I hope he was in better shape at 19 than he is in right now. But we all have these precepts, these 
perceptions. And that's what our understanding then drives our behavior. Our behavior are our words, our thoughts, and our actions. And so the theology drives the understanding. The understanding drives the behavior. What we do, the choices that we make in every part of life. And it's our behavior that largely drives the results, the, the, the fruit of our lives, if you will. And so it's very, very important that we understand this progression, theology to understanding, understanding to behavior, behavior to results. And that we understand our theology has to be rooted in reality. We, we all, I mean, I, I've done this before. I think we can all kind of cook up a little theological gumbo. And we can borrow from him over there and her here and this group there and that teaching there. And I went to a Tony Robbins seminar one time. I'm going to throw that into my theological gumbo. But for the Christ follower, for, for one who is in relationship with God, we have to remember what the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter number 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says that all Scripture, say the word all. All, all Scripture is God-breathed. That means inspired by God. Every word from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be trained for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, look at what it says in Hebrews in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. I really believe in my life, this is my biggest problem with the Bible. When I look at what God says biblically, the fact of the matter is God has said it. And he uses that to reveal my heart. That he uses the Bible and the truth and the reality of scripture to show what's really going on in my life and in my heart. When I was about three years old, I was cooped up inside one day because it was raining. And we were in Houston, Texas. I had two little brothers. And on this particular day, at three years old, I destroyed my room. I pulled out every toy, every game, every piece of clothing. I'd kind of closed the door so my mom wouldn't see and just completely destroyed the room. And about two or three o'clock in the afternoon, I was reaching for the last toy on the shelf in my closet when all of a sudden I heard the door behind me. Now, even at three years old, you have an innate sense of busted. You, you have this innate sense of this is not going to be good. And then when you see the face of your mom or your dad, you, you know what's coming, right? And my mom stepped into the closet with these huge inquisitive eyes, asking just visually, no words spoken at this point yet, what are you thinking? I, I remember this. And before she even had a chance to say a word, as I was reaching for the last toy, I said to my mom, don't come, don't tell me things. 
That's a pretty good line for a three-year-old, isn't it? Don't come, don't tell me things. A lot of times we do the same thing with God. A lot of times we look in the Bible, and rather than us reading the Bible, the Bible is reading us. And when we don't like what it shows us, we try to discredit the Bible. Like, I don't know, that was a long time ago. I'm different. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. He loves you by name. He knows who you are. And you're not that special. Tell your neighbor, you're not that special. That's a gift to your neighbor, by the way. You just gave them a blessing. They may not realize it yet, but that's a blessing. And so when we understand this underpinning of reality and truth, I think it causes us to be able to step back and go, okay, God, go ahead. Here's the great news, sexually speaking. Sexual satisfaction is a product of your theology. Sexual satisfaction is a direct product of your theology. That song that we started the message with today, Love is Hard. Love is difficult. It's tough. Did you know that the average couple takes six years of married sex to find their stride? Six years with one person. You have to be willing to do the work. But it doesn't just, I mean, these, the movies that we watch, the, the things that we see on television, it just, it just happens. And the, the fulfillment and the joy and the freedom and the liberation was unbelievable. I saw Star Wars. No, you didn't. You met a stranger in a bar on film. That is not sexual satisfaction. Statistically, the most sexually satisfied people are folks who are married and have sex regularly. Why is that? Some of you students right now are just heaved out. You're just, ugh. Well, it's what God says. Go all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis 2, 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now again, in this relationship, there is deep theology. There are parts of God's personality that he stamped primarily into the heart of a man. If you'll remember the creation poem, at every step along the way, God says, it is good. God saw what he had made and it was good. The first day and night and it was good. 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 One time 
in all of creation, God said, this is not good. When he looked down and he saw man alone, I mean, you you can almost feel the tension in heaven in that moment as God looks at his creation and sees a man by himself tending the whole thing and says, oh, this is not good. This is going to be a problem. He needs help. Now, to be sure, man needs woman's help. But God chose in his creative genius to use woman to also impart his image in this world. The reason it wasn't good for man to be alone was because man by himself cannot accurately reveal and display all of the characteristics of God that God wanted revealed and displayed in humanity. And so God brings a woman to Adam. God brings Eve, the mother of all living. And Adam, in the original Hebrew, when he sees Eve, he is presented with her as a gift. Adam says, whoa, yay God. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We are one. Male and female are necessary to represent the character of God. There are parts of the the strength of a man, physical strength. Listen, I'm married to and have a strong woman daughter in my family. I'm not saying women aren't strong. Believe me. Please. Please. And strong women are a gift, by the way. A gift. But there are parts of that physical, overt strength of a man that represents the character and the nature of God. That's who he is. There are also parts of the strong character and personality, but also the femininity of a woman that represent God. The nurturing side of a woman. God, the Bible says that God will call his children to him like a mother to her breast. There's there's that nurturing side of God, which is every bit as much there. Now, there is overlap between male and female, but make no mistake about it. Men and women are different. Let's just give God a hand, shall we? Yay, God. And it took male and female to represent the image of God. So in marriage, all of a sudden... The two become one in order to accurately represent the character and the nature of God. This theme is picked up in the New Testament, post-life of Jesus, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. But he expands on it. Again, remembering, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So marriage is not just about us. In the Old Testament, it is about the image and the reflection of the character of God. In the New Testament, it continues that thought and then expands upon it and says marriage is now about Christ and the church, the bridegroom and his bride. So marriage matters to God. Marriage is this amazing vehicle that God chooses to use to represent himself and his love for people. 
It is a big deal. Now, I told you two lies. Let me tell you one truth. Sex is a gift from God to be celebrated. Sex is a gift from God to be celebrated. You you ought to be smiling more than you are right now. This, This is great. It's a gift. It's not a burden, but it can be. It, it, it can be. Here's some more good news. Nobody has perfectly managed the gift of sex. Nobody has. Some of us have handled it better or worse than others, but nobody has perfectly handled this gift. And so I want to just lay out for you an opportunity going forward. An opportunity going forward in Christ. Number one, guard it in the covenant of marriage. Guard this gift in the covenant of marriage. A gift this precious needs to be cherished. This this is the greatest gift you will ever give another person because it's part of you. It is you. Women, let me ask you a question. How many of y'all are married and and you you wear a wedding ring on your hand? Let me just see a show of hands. Downtown, y'all raise your hands as well. Okay. Do you remember what it was like when, when your husband placed that ring on your finger? Do you remember that moment? How many of you, your husbands got down on one knee? You know what's funny is how many men will not admit that? I get down on one knee. I don't want to. Okay. Let's just, let's just play this out in an extreme way. Let's say that your husband placed on your hand the Hope Diamond. I mean a monster monster rock something that honestly you're a little embarrassed to wear but you go ahead and do it anyway (laughs) you kind of drive like this you wave to people like this okay if he's got this monster rock on your finger and he paid squillions of dollars for it squillions (laughs) look if you're in high school I know numbers you don't know nothing about yet, all right? <laughs> Actually, that's not true. You know a lot more about numbers than I do. But I got the mic. So, he's placed this diamond on your hand that is thousands of dollars. Squillions. That gift pales in comparison to the gift of himself. That he gives you. In the same way, you will never buy for your husband a boat, a fly rod, a gun that can even approach the gift of yourself. It's a big, dead gum deal 
to be protected in the covenant of marriage. You and I live in a world where definitions ebb and flow. And the church, by and large, has done a lousy job of loving people who are homosexuals. And we will not change the definition of marriage. We will love people, we will be gracious, and we will be kind. But marriage is a God thing. It is not up to votes, ballots, or judges. So love people. Love people. Love people. Love people. But our authority is God's word. Now we respect our earthly authority. We are under the authority of the governing authorities. And by the way, we vote. Nobody's taken office with a tank in a long time. So vote. Vote sane people. Vote your conscience. Vote your morals. But vote, but be able to make a case for why you believe what you believe. The state does not allow cousins to marry. In Texas. <laughs> Guard the gift in the covenant of marriage. And then the second thing, go for it in the freedom of marriage. Somebody ought to shout amen. amen. In the freedom of marriage. Here's the thing when you're married, you've got nothing to hide. Julie and I got married in Laurel, Mississippi. We were flying out on our honeymoon the next morning. We drove to New Orleans, Louisiana for our wedding night. Spent the night there in New Orleans. The next morning, we had to be downstairs and out the door at 5.30 a.m. Bad planning. (laughs) But as we came down the elevator in our hotel in New Orleans, there was a bus full of of high school kids on a church youth trip checking into the hotel and as we stepped off of the elevator hand in hand my first thought as we were leaving a hotel together we're busted (laughs) and then I went we're married (laughs) that's right we were in a hotel together (laughs) there's so much freedom in the gift of sex in marriage, there should be. Husbands and wives, talk to one another. Husbands and wives, offer yourself to one another. Did you know that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are not to deprive ourselves from each other except for a season of prayer and then to come back together quickly so that we do not give the devil a foothold? So, all that stuff about, not tonight, honey, I have a headache, Uh uh-uh. Not tonight, honey, we agreed to pray. I used that verse in a sermon about 12 years ago, when we were still meeting in the high school, and one of our 
sheriff's deputies that we love and we're here for security. Everybody kind of thinned out, and he came over to me. He said, Pastor, man, I just want you to know, thank you so much for that message today. We had a good day. All the children were safe and everything. He goes, I have a question for you. I said, yeah. He goes, what was that verse in 2 Corinthians? My wife ain't going to believe that. <laughs> Sex is different. As a matter of fact, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, run from sexual sin. Tell your neighbor, run. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Do you see how the gospel permeates every part of life? Everything. What you do with your body, what I do with my body, where we put our eyes is a reflection of our theology, our ideas about God. And the Bible says that our bodies were bought at a high price. And for those of you scoring at home, the high price is the life of God's own son, Jesus. Jesus gave his body up for your body and for every part of who you are. He went to the cross so that you could be forgiven of every single sin. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus' death is sufficient, the Bible says. The only unpardonable sin, Jesus said, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's it. So if you right now are feeling guilty or maybe even ashamed, you need to understand something. That may be an indication of your past, but it's not an indication of Jesus. In him. In him. Forgiveness is complete. In him, life is new. This is what the Bible says in Revelation. Revelation verse chapter 21. Now, Re Revelation, you'll remember, was the Apostle John's vision from God about the end times and what that would be like and what it would involve. And this is what John writes. Again, scriptural, inspired by the word, inspired by God. The Bible says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
I am making everything new. This is the gospel. This is the promise of Jesus. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that kind of new, you've never experienced that kind of forgiveness, that's why he did what he did. As a church, we get to share that with you. Yes, we hope and pray that you experience sexual freedom, but as a subset of complete spiritual freedom. The Bible says it is for freedom that we have been set free. Nobody becomes a Christian to all of a sudden be shackled again by legalism and rules and regulations. We are forgiven for freedom. I want to ask you to bow your heads, please. And I want to invite everyone to be praying right now. But if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, I want to invite you to pray. And I want to thank you for guarding the holiness of this moment. But if you've never stepped into a relationship with Christ, then I want to invite you to pray right now. If God's leading you to step into that forgiveness, into that newness, with everything that you've got, all of your past, all of your shame, all of your talents, your gifts, your blessing, all of it surrendered to him in this moment. You pray right now just in your own words silently. Just talk to God and say, Jesus, I give you my life once and for all. I confess all of my sin. I lay it all at your feet in order to receive your forgiveness. Jesus, give me the grace to forgive myself, to walk in newness with you. confess my sin. I claim your forgiveness. With every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment, this is a big deal, y'all. It's a holy moment. And if you just prayed your life into Christ's hands, if you just stepped into that new relationship, I want to ask you just quietly, if you will, raise your hand and hold it up high for just a moment, because this moment is for you. You are going to need this moment, because there will come a moment when you will wonder if this was real. There will come a time when you will need to be able to say, you know what, I know that that moment on Sunday, March the 2nd, 2014, happened and it was real.
put your hands down. Because for us as a church, we want to be a family of faith to you. We want to serve you in this new relationship with Christ. And so to do that, I want to ask everybody, if you will, just for a moment, downtown y'all as well, if you will, take out the program that you got when you came in this morning. If everybody will take it out just real quickly. The Connect card is a tool. It's there to help people connect. Now, for those of you who just stepped into a relationship with Christ, you especially, I want to ask you to fill this out. There's a place there to indicate I committed my life to Christ. And when our service ends in just a few minutes, I want to invite you to take this card and tear it off at the perforation and hand it to somebody in a blue Lake Hills Church shirt. Give it to somebody. Or maybe to somebody underneath the blue LHC canopy to make a personal connection. Just very brief but very real. Others of you, you may have a prayer request. Something we can be praying about for you that our prayer team can lift you up regarding. This is there for you as well. But especially for those of you who just stepped into a relationship with Christ, as a church, we want to tell you that we celebrate that with you. We want to be that family of faith and serve you any way that we can. And we'd like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home.